From the boardroom to the shop floor, good business runs on good governance. Join esteemed expert in governance, Dr. Nimrod Mbele, for the next hour as he takes us beyond governance, making sense of doing business in South Africa. Every good evening to all and welcome to tonight's installment of Beyond Governance. Uh, my name is Nimrod Mbele. As always, it's a pleasure to be in your, to share this space and time with you as we continue to probe issues of national importance. Um, I contend that, uh, you know, there's never a dull moment in South Africa. Uh, we've recently noted the spotlight being put on the public protector at the tussle between, uh, you know, the, you know, her office and Pravin Godan on the, on the rogue unit and the public protector against the president on Bosasa. Um, there's just so much, um, as if it's not enough, we have uh, the Commission of Inquiry into the state capture under the leadership of, of Justice Zondo. Um, these are some of the things that goes without us saying that we live in a very interesting society uh, wherein there, there's at least some element of accountability that is coming through. So we do hope that these kinds of um, you know investigations and commissions will bear fruits <coughs> um, in as far as transforming the economy is concerned. Um, I contend that you know you know some of these issues it's all about um, you know the the whether there's merit or no merit uh, on the public protectors uh, you know um, sagas only time will tell. My my theory you know is that um, the public protector from a principal point of view ought to err on the side of the public uh, because there's this narrative that is you know taking root in South Africa that um, there are certain individuals that are perceived to be untouchable. So by virtue of, of, of being defined as a, public, as a public protector, that on its own gives confidence uh, around, a, around ch- Chapter 9, uh, institution, you know, um, and so on and so forth. But be that as it may, it is important for, for, for these institutions to be managed and governed in a manner that is credible, um, you know, which is quite critical. Um, Taking this issue further, I mean, uh, I'm not sure. Um, most people must have picked up the, the, you know, the the, the 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 racism allegations, you know, leveled by the EFF on the judge that was presiding over the 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 the, the, the recent issue. Uh, what's your take on it? I mean, was there racism? I've looked at the video. I've listened to interviews, you know, of the black lawyers in particular. I did not pick up anything. Personally, you might have picked up something. Um, the EFF is of the view that uh, the public protector she's fit to hold she's fit to hold office, and there's another quarter of of individual that says she's not fit to hold office, and and again you know it's a matter of time because there, there are processes that will be followed. Our constitution um, has been tried has been tried and tested, and and it is good to note that it will prevail at some point. And I've also picked up recently that the former CEO of Prasa have submitted a letter notifying the Zondo Commission of his intention uh, to testify sometimes in August. What do you, what do you think of that? Um, has he been requested to do that, or is it just a voluntary information? By the way, this is the, the backdrop of a, a very damning uh, uh, record, uh, whether they've been proved or not proven is something that is yet to be determined. Uh, for an example, back in 2015, a journalist by, you know, journalist uh, Peter Louis Maybach revealed in a report that Prasa purchased 25 diesel uh, and 45 electronic lo- locomotives from unknown shelf company called Sifambo Rail at the cost of 3.5 billion rands. And obviously, he maintains that Prasa was never captured. And again, those issues are subject to scrutiny. At some point, we'll, we'll know what is actually happening. 
Anyway, with you know, moving on with speed, let me take this opportunity to have to wish happy, um, you know, Katie happy birthday, uh, and thank you for gracing the way uh, the airwaves once again, someone as well. Likewise, uh, thank you very much for gracing the airwaves, Mandy, Lindy, as well as Ronati. Uh, thank you for well job done. As always, I'm not flying solo. I've got Tabo, um, who's the producer of the show. Timen, uh, thank you for doing sterling work. If you missed our show last week, uh, not to worry. Uh, simply download our podcast at www.highfm.com and let us know what you think. Um, I implore you to weigh in our conversation uh, via our WhatsApp or, or, or SMS line. Our SMS line is 34519. Our telegram number is 061 eight nine five one zero one nine and I'm pleased to take your emails. My email is my email address is Nimrod at highfm.co.za. And moving on tonight's very topical issue as we you know discuss issues of national importance. Uh I have a a, a well known individual in the studio uh, which I will briefly introduce to him. But let me just personally paint a picture of the conversation that we're gonna to have tonight. We know that the you know the 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 the, the National Student Financial Aid Scheme was launched by government and they've rolled out massive uh, grants to a number of students. But unfortunately, we have had what, what is being referred to as a missing, as a missing middle. A number of uh, deserving, you know, academically deserving families who are left out, literally, you know, being thrown to the wolf, as some might argue. Uh, uh, so that gap, um, or that gap has been, you know, stopped on its track by, by Ugusasa Student Financial Aid. Um, that would be, you know, uh, taking us through by, you know, uh, Sizun Masana. Uh, for those who don't know Sizun Masana, who is he? Um, who's just joined me. Um, I'm going to call him Dr. Susan Wasana. For those who don't know him, he's a qualified chartered accountant. He started his career at Unilever. In 1989, he established Cizre and Company, the first black-owned audit practice in KwaZulu-Natal. In 1996, he became the founding partner of Nkoki Cizre Nzaluba, now called Cizre Nzaluba Goboto, uh, which is the fifth largest audit firm in South Africa. In 1998, he joined Telcom as the as CEO and was responsible for its listing on JSE and uh, New York Stock Exchange. Suze uh, was the CEO of First Rand Banking Group since, since 2005 until he retired in September in 2015. Uh, he serves as the chairman of various foundation and trust. He's a co-founder and the chairman of National Education Collaboration Trust. He's also a founder and the chairman of Ikusasa Student Financial Aid Program, which funds and supports students uh, from, from poor or middle uh, or missing middle backgrounds. Uh, he's a social entrepreneur who recently founded Future Nation Schools, which is a chain of affordable private schools in South Africa. He's also founded uh, Sifiso Learning Group, which is involved in uh, educating technology, academic publishing, and real estate. Uh, he's been conferred honorary doctorate by universities such as Forte, Deben, uh, you know, Deben University of Technology, UJ, and Walter Sisuli. I mean, if I were to go through his uh, resume, I'll probably spend another 20 minutes. Uh, that's how renowned uh, Caesar is. On that note, let me take this opportunity to welcome Bob Caesar. Good evening and welcome. Uh, good evening and welcome and uh, greetings to the listeners. Thank you very much, sir. Earlier on, I painted a picture of, um, you know, the fund that you have just, that you're chairing, which is called Ugusasa Student Financial Aid Program, which, which is meant to really come to the rescue of the so-called missing middle. Take us through the rationale behind, behind establishment of the fund? 
Dr. Nimrod, um, you know, there are a couple of things. Uh, obviously, you've mentioned the problem which is faced particularly by students who fall in the so-called missing middle. Uh, how do you define missing middle? These are students uh, that come from families that end between 350,000 rand to 600,000 rand. That's a definition that's been accepted generally by the higher education sector. You find that obviously government, as you indicated earlier, uh, is now offering almost full cost of study for the students that uh, you know come from poorer backgrounds. In other words, those families that end up to 350,000 rand. Uh, we needed to find a sustainable solution for those students who still come from families who cannot afford to send their children to university, uh, particularly those that end between that range that I just indicated. So how do you do this is to mobilize the private sector, organize business, to come together, but not only to deal with the issue of financial aid, to deal with the issue of how do we produce the skills that the economy needs, how to make sure that those students that are funded uh, do pass and graduate and and find employment, uh, but also how do we make sure that uh, in mobilizing organized business, uh, we can address some of the fundamental issues. You know, the, for instance, the stats essay issued uh, the stats today of the unemployment rate in the country. And if you look at that, it's a real gloom, gloomy picture because we are at levels that we last saw during the global financial crisis or global economic crisis, you know, about you know, almost 11, 12 years ago. So there's an indication that as a country, yes, of course, we need to grow the economy, but we've got to have a fundamental approach and maybe changed approach around how we produce the skills uh, to be able to grow our economy, especially in the context of, the, you know, the fourth industrial revolution, the digitization, the change in the nature of work that we see happening all around us. Thank uh, you very much for that insight, um, uh, Bob Caesar. But you raise a very interesting point that that perhaps maybe I think we need to slightly, you know, probe a little bit um, with reference to, to, you know, the ever-increasing, you know, unemployment rate. Uh, for an example, we've just learned today through stats essay that we're now sitting at 29% unemployment. And, and for me, it says, you know, all the stakeholders involved, government, private, un- private sector, unions, and, and, and all in Sanjay ought to look at um, uh, you know, unemployment differently in that how do we promote a sense of entrepreneurship? Uh, because the conversation, the narrative that is prevalent now in relation to what the skills, the skills gap that you, ref- that you refer to, but also as, um, uh, uh, structural challenges that are involved in the economy suggests to me and probably a lot of people that we need to change the way we look at to do things and, 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 you know, perhaps maybe entrench the culture of entrepreneurship. Uh, not as a as a, a a last resort for most people who did not make it either uh, you know through funding institution and so on and so forth. Why are we not really being able to crack it? What 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 do we need to do as government, business, civil society organization to plant the seed that would enable us to think differently to address unemployment? I mean, twenty nine percent, and it's growing. It's quite it's quite scary. Mm. Absolutely. You know, there are a couple of things which I really think are important for us to address as a country, as a people as well. You know, the first one is the kind of conversations that we have, whether it's in schools, you know, colleges, universities, churches, or at home, around the importance of entrepreneurship. So, you know, often you still come across a lot of young people, you know, you mentioned that about schools, and we teach entrepreneurship at Future Nation Schools. Uh, so, and we encourage parents, 
you know, especially parents of our children, to get involved and understand what the entrepreneurship is about. Because parents have a huge influence on the decisions and the choices that, uh, you know, their children actually make. Um, but also, you know, there are a number of structural issues as a country that we've got to face. South Africa still has very big government, big business, and big labor. And if you look at the three, actually I can argue that uh, they almost work together to make it very difficult for entrepreneurship actually to happen or for small and medium enterprises to emerge and grow and become really big employers and, and job creators. So we've got to address some of those. And the same applies to, for instance, in that regard, the whether it's policies or legislation or regulations or the red tape that we have in our system, which is still a major problem, you know, as a small business. You know, I started four businesses, five businesses three years ago. I can tell you with a person who's got my kind of experience, it's not easy to start a business. You know, whether it is about the funding or it's about the support or it's about compliance and regulations that you have to comply with, it's really, really difficult. So there are a number of these things that we talk about, but we haven't really fundamentally addressed in terms of how we change it. But it all starts with the mindset. We've got to change the mindset of our people. I mean, I'll make an example, for instance. We have a number of people sitting at home, some of them with degrees or with qualifications from colleges, uh, who are waiting for someone to give them a job. And you have people who come, for instance, from the rest of the continent, almost with nothing, come into this country, and they hustle, they start businesses, and they succeed. And, you know, it's all about the mindset, you know, because we have a number of our people who have a mindset, I'm going to school, I'm going to college or university, because someone must give me a job. But how do we translate that mindset that you referred to? I mean, we have seen it, uh, uh, you know, folks from North of Africa coming through here, they, they, they're able to crack it because they are wired in a particular way. South Africans, whether is it a, is it, is it an educational, uh, competence or is it an educational issue or is it just broadly societal issue wherein we are able to plant a seed that, uh, entrepreneurship should not be considered as a last resort, but it has to be something that has been elevated almost like a priority. Like for an example, the states, I mean, uh, there's a culture of appreciating failure. Uh, the more you fail, the more everyone embraces it. But South Africans, my experience is that even the banks, they, you know, if you fail, they, people tend to shy away from you. And personally, that's one reason that most people are, are, are quite wary of pursuing entrepreneurship. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's why they, it starts with the culture. It starts with conversations that we have in homes, in schools, in churches. You know, every day uh, when you meet people, you must really talk about entrepreneurship and the importance of it. Uh, but also, you know, structurally, the number of things that we need to do. That's why in Igusasa Student Financial Aid Program, uh, whilst, yes, we fund students, you know, to get into university to pursue uh, what we call occupations in high demand, it is important that we're focusing on those areas that can lead to not just uh, skill acquisition, but also can lead to people starting businesses, you know, growing our economy, uh, you know, becoming entrepreneurs, uh, because that's, we all know, I mean, we say it all the time that, you know, entrepreneurship uh, is where employment can be created. Big business doesn't create jobs, especially in the context of digitization and where the world is going and where the world of work is going. Uh, so we've got to really encourage, and there are a lot of really new industries, actually, that are that are emerging. Uh, for instance, you know, with the fourth industrial revolution, with social media, uh, with big data, with the, you know, Internet of Things, artificial intelligence and all of these, there are a number of new opportunities that uh, we're not even beginning to talk about. 
including in our education system. So we've got to, you know, through Igusasa Student Financial Aid Program, we're having very different conversations, for instance, with the universities, with the vice chancellors, with the dean's forums around the future of work and where we need to put a lot more effort and resources in creating new degrees and maybe doing away with some of the degrees that are actually dying. And often universities, uh, and as well as TVET colleges, are very slow in doing that. Perhaps maybe that's your unique selling proposition because um, as a private sector-led or initiated program, uh, you, you're more likely to be nimble in response to some of these structural challenges. For example, you made reference to a very good point, which maybe I'm going to get Eric you know, to throw in w- when he's ready, that the, 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 the whole issue of, um, you know, Absolute, you know, uh, degrees, for an example, offered at universities. Um, while we continue with this kind of narrative, what do you know for the fact that uh, BA, for an example, it's no longer as, as, as worthy as it used to be, you know, back, our, back in our time. Mm. Why do you have FET colleges whose mandate ought to be focusing on vocational uh, competencies doing humanities? Because there are some of these FET colleges that are doing that. Why are we doing what we do when we know exactly that there's no future? Yeah, well, essentially, it, it is. It goes back to what I was saying earlier. Because if you just take the the Tigvet College as an example, you're quite right. I mean, the government subsidizes at the moment two type of qualifications in the Tigvet colleges, and I'll give you an example. So they they subsidize uh, the National Certificate Vocational, which is typically has administration and HR and so on, and you have an oversupply of people that are coming out of that. Secondly, the government subsidizes the native programs. The native programs are more for artisans, in other words, electricians, plumbers, mechanics, boilermakers, and so on. But you find that if you go to a lot of the TVET colleges, and there are 50 TVET colleges in this country that are spread across across more than 250 campuses, you're going to find that if you go to the workshops there, there's still, for instance, motor mechanics. There are a number of these TVET colleges that are, have drive trains of a 1962 Morris Minor. <laughs> Today, even the cheapest of cars uses the latest technology. So what are you training people for? So as a result, a lot of these young people who get trained at these TVET colleges cannot find employment because what they were trained on is completely irrelevant. And as a country, it's taking us too long to really change the curriculum, to train the lecturers, to to fit out the, for instance, workshops at these TVET colleges for things that are relevant today and for the future. So it's just taking way too long. And at the same time, in the same, on at least some of the same TVET colleges, you have what is called occupational programs. What are those? Those are programs that are not subsidized by government, but subsidized by the private sector mm-hmm. that are relevant for what the business needs today. But you find that those those areas, occupational programs, are actually too expensive because government doesn't subsidize them. Government subsidizes things that are not relevant. So there's an agency in overhauling the whole TVET system so that it's more relevant for the world of work in which we are. Thank you very much for that input. Um, Eric, you want to chip, chip in based yeah. on what Babunga uh, Sona has pointed Thank you, Sizwe. It's an absolute pleasure Thanks, to meet somebody who's, you know, you've seen their picture in the paper as, as CEO of FNB and to meet you in person. It's, an, it's a pleasure and a privilege. Thank you, sir. Um, also, I'm, I'm very encouraged by what you're saying. Um, I'd like to make a comment and then ask a question or ask the question first. What, what exactly um, are your, your initiatives doing uh, to resolve the problem? I'm sure there's a long list of things you, you're doing. 
uh, so on, on the solution and the strategy side of how do we solve this. But just as a suggestion and an observation to take the debate beyond the traditional, you know, bottleneck, um, uh, stories that we have with increasing unemployment and that yet skill shortages in the digital 4-hour space. One of the most encouraging things that I've heard lately, maybe you knew about it before, is say Amazon Amazon has got more than 2,000 employees in South Africa and is growing their staff in South Africa. So while I found that an incredibly um, optimistic uh, uh, kind of observation is because that is the fourth industrial revolution. That is the e-commerce, the digitalization world. And it represents a global company that's operating in South Africa and is, you know, one of the major uh, companies in the world. Now, again, on the optimistic side, the skills that we're talking about in terms of being digitally savvy, tech savvy, you'll I'm constantly amazed, I'm also in the educational space, how tech savvy or so many of our youth are. Mm-hmm. They've got a natural inclination. My twin granddaughters of 15 months are totally obsessed and besotted with the touch screen and they get very dif- disappointed when they can't get it to respond. So I'm suggesting that, that, the, that the digital world is not such a area of impossible skills to de- to develop the latent um, tech savviness that our youth have. And it may also explain, you know, just as a further point, why our uh, uh, people from Africa, youth from Africa coming to this country are more able, as you put it, uh, Nimrod, to um, get work and or to start businesses with service. The small and medium and big business market, because the nature of of the the digital world is innovation. So you have a tech startup, and it supplies, and it links together, and it works on a network. So there's nothing, you know, exclusive about you don't have to win a tender to to operate in that space. And they somehow have got the mindset, says we, that you've been talking about. Um, And I'm suggesting... You know, how do we build that mindset? What are the concrete initiatives that you're taking and that we can take uh, to really promote a dramatic shift in the level of uh, of employment and and entrepreneurship in this space? Yeah. So the the couple of things. Uh, for instance, I work very closely with the Department of Basic Education. Uh, I'm the co-founder of the National Education Collaboration Trust, which brings together business labor to support government in addressing some of the fundamental issues because we've got to take a long-term view fundamental issues that the department of basic education faces and what are those uh, for instance you know the department of basic education uh, has been working with dr teddy blatcher who have now introduced entrepreneurship in the curriculum in the caps curriculum that's taught at schools mm-hmm. there's an e3 program which is now running but in addition to that through the national education collaboration trust the nect We've helped government, especially the Department of Basic Education, uh, think about in a different way about the curriculum. So Mm -hmm. this year, the Department of Basic Education, with the support from the NECT, is introducing through two additional streams of the curriculum uh, in the CAPS curriculum. In other words, you know, from grade zero to grade 12, we're now going to have 
in addition to the academic curriculum, a vocational curriculum. And obviously we need to train teachers uh, that are able to teach that. And secondly, a technical curriculum. A technical curriculum uh, that is about the digital age, really, because it's got a lot of ICT in that curriculum. Because not all young people want to become academics, which is what our curriculum has been to, has been sure. up to now. That's the first thing. But a number of things, in addition to the culture that Eric spoke about, that we spoke about earlier as well, that we've got to do. You know, if you look at our country, we still have, for instance, a certification system which is based on you get a certificate at matric, you get a certificate from a university or Tibet college or community college, and that's how you're assessed. But actually, a certificate doesn't say anything about the competencies that you have, whether it is the foundational skills, for instance, for counting, for numeracy, for using a computer, uh, and so on, that you, you really need to have today if you're going to enter the world of entrepreneurship or the world of work. Uh, so we've got to think very differently about not just a certification framework. We have a national qualification framework, which really has served its purpose, but is no longer relevant. What we need now is a competency framework. In other words, talking about the digitalization that Eric, you were talking about, for instance, we find a lot of young people in our schools and everywhere, at homes and so on, they can code, uh, they can program mm. things, they can nice. do robotics, mm. uh, and they are competent a yes. lot more than some of the people, for instance, who may even have gone to university to sure. be trained yep. about coding, about computing, Absolutely. about robotics, yeah. about AI, and so on. So that's why we've got to think really differently about how we're training young people, how we recognize the competencies and the skills that they have, as opposed to a piece of paper which may mm. not be what the For paper sure. is written on. Mm-hmm. So those are some of the things that we've got to do. And we're working with the uh, system, for instance, at Future Nation Schools, traditionally, or even today, in a school, you, you, especially when you get to senior phase, in other words, grade 8, 9, up to grade 12, you have subject choices that give you like 8 subjects, 7 or 8 subjects. But there are a lot of these subjects that are not relevant today. So at Future Nation Schools, as an example, we teach 12 subjects that are not optional, all students must do. So all students must do computing, which includes robotics and coding, all of this. All students must do entrepreneurship. No, it's not a choice that oh. you have to make. All students must do mathematics, not maths literacy. Mm-hmm. All students must do mathematics, mm-hmm. as an example. Mm-hmm. And all students must do leadership. Mm-hmm. Because it's important. It's not a choice. Yeah. Because these are really important things if we're going to build the culture of entrepreneurship, yes. uh, the culture of problem solving, of collaboration, of creativity, uh, and really creating industries that are solving real problems as opposed to just simply academic. Sure. Um, sorry. <coughs> You raised a very interesting point uh, that you were collaborated with the national uh, with the, um, the the national education collaboration trust. Perhaps maybe the initial question would be, you know, being a, a thought leader in your own right and having started uh, businesses that are successful that ought to be emulated. How receptive is DBE and and department in general in terms of buying or, or you know um, cross pollinating on 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 what you have already started? Um, as a matter of fact, are we getting traction? Are we seeing them responding in a manner that 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 is uh, commensurate with the dictates of the 21st century? Um, in terms of some of the stuff that you pointed, first you pointed out that you know uh, your, some of the subjects are non-negotiable, almost like a core core business of of the curriculum. Are we getting? Are we moving towards that direction? 
Yes, of course, you know, the government must recognize that the government runs a really big system. So you have 24,500 schools, 420,000 teachers spread across, you know, the nine provinces, uh, you know, that we have in the country and so on. So, but, you know, what's really encouraging is what I talked about earlier. You know, the fact that the Department of Basic Education is now introducing the three-stream curriculum. We look at our schools, even though they are independent schools, as a laboratory. You know, we show results and, you, 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 you know, we write assessments that are written by other schools. And the proof of the pudding is in the results that we get, even in the core subjects, let alone the additional subjects that we've added to the curriculum. So you can see that this thing works. Um, for instance, I mean, we now work with even some of the universities. Just tomorrow we're hosting one of the universities. In a couple of weeks we're hosting five universities at our schools that we're showing how project-based learning, how inquiry-based learning, integrated teaching actually happens, how we've taken the curriculum, we've deconstructed the curriculum so that we can, for instance, because we've added a lot more subjects, the issue is how do you make it more efficient? So the number of uh, themes, for instance, in geography and mathematics or computing, that are similar concepts. So instead of teaching them as silos, you integrate these. So you reduce the workload for teachers and really focus on what is relevant as opposed to just keep adding more for the sake of adding more. So there is responsiveness in government, but you must recognize the fact that it's a big system. And often, you know, changing that system with policies, with the, you know, accreditation bodies, with regulatory bodies takes time. We can accelerate it, though. Okay, uh, I just want to thank you so much, Susie. It's, it's, it's inspiring to to hear what you're doing. I just want to unpack a little bit uh, more about what's you know happening as in basic education with the Department of Basic Education for government public schools, as opposed to future nation schools, which I understand that you really piloting these ideas and and getting a proven case to present. But in terms of your um, access. To the minister, the DG, uh, and your, you know, because you come with the stature of being a successful business person and bringing big business to the party in, in, in funding, um, do you have the ear of the top leadership of, of basic education uh, uh, in yep. order to potentially, because you're talking in basic education, maybe 10 million. Learners, so 13 million to be 13 to be million. Agree. I mean, imagine if you can impact 13 yeah. million people. Yeah. So in the NECT that I co-founded, that I chair, uh, we have the minister who's been a trustee and in fact the deputy chair of the NECT. You have the DG. Uh, so we meet on a regular basis. You have the unions. You know, all the sure. six teacher unions you, that you, we have in the right. country that sit wow. in the same room. Wow. Uh, we have the private sector, organized business like wow. Business Leadership South Africa, sure. you know, that supports and so on. Yes. Just yesterday, uh, Eric, I was addressing the Association for the Development of Education in Africa, which yes. South Africa is a part of. We are the host yesterday and today, uh, talking about the future of the curriculum. And I was a keynote speaker there, and I was talking about some of these things that I'm talking about here. Which are, you know, we do in even our school, even though our schools are small in relative terms, but as a laboratory and some of the things and the connections that we have, uh, for instance, uh, we're part of the Global Schools Forum. 
So we're exposed to what happen, what's happening in other countries sure. that are doing <laughs> innovative things and we're right. able to bring some of these ideas here. Yeah. So as I was saying, I have the ear. I'm really privileged in that regard. I work with both the basic education department and I also work with the Department of Education, right. Science and Innovation. Just today I was sitting with the Director General of the Department of Science and Innovation talking about some of these things. How right. do we develop the Sure. The skills of the future. Right, right. So I'm really privileged that I can navigate both the public space as well as the private space. Just uh, to to make it pragmatic um, in terms of the curriculum, uh, in, in terms of introducing some of the ideas and programs you're talking about uh, within the mainstream department of basic education. How much uh, headway have you made in, in that regard, or you know, how much of, is it on the agenda? After you respond, I'll give you a suggestion that may speed right. it up. So right now, as we speak, we're helping the Department of Basic Education as the NECT with at least five things. Um, the first one is the implementation of the three-stream curriculum that right. I spoke about. In other words, introducing the vocational curriculum as well as the technical curriculum mm-hmm. in, in addition to the academic curriculum. Right. The second one is about we run the 21st century labs. In other words, you know, how do we think about learning and teaching in the 21st century mm-hmm. with digitization mm-hmm. and everything that's happening in the context of the 4IR? Mm-hmm. So we're doing that. We have a, pilot, a number of pilot government schools in mm-hmm. which we are running programs in right. that regard right. for government. Right. Uh, thirdly, one of the things that we've been driving as the NACT <clears throat> is to think very differently about early childhood development. In other words, ECD was sitting in the, or still sitting in the Department of Social Development, which means we've got to think really differently about, um, you know, early childhood development, not as social welfare, which is what we've been doing as a country for the last, you know, 25 years or so, to think about it as really the important start of human development, of cognitive development mm-hmm. and so on. Mm-hmm. That was approved and we drove that process of policy and now we're helping the Department of Basic Education take over early childhood development from the Department of Social Development, as an mm-hmm, example. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's another program that we're doing. Uh, we're also, you know, helping, you know, with thinking about, for instance, we can't have quality education without quality teachers. So, you know, the issue is how do we then train teachers from initial teacher education to those that are already in service already with equipping them with school skills? Because if we say... You know, 21st century requires collaboration skills, creativity, Mm -hmm. uh, critical thinking, and so on. Mm -hmm. You can't have it actually happen in schools if teachers themselves do not have these skills. So how do we impart these skills and work with universities that are faculties of education uh, to train, you know, uh, teachers or student teachers in all of these new things so that we can have teachers in the classroom that are the best at what they do? that have the competence and the skills mm. to train, um, you know, to educate our children in the country. So those are just some of the examples of things that we're doing uh, for government. You know, I'm glad you raised the issue mm-hmm. of um, the alignment of educators in relation to the 21st century skills and competencies because um, there, there seems to be a disjuncture there. The, the, you know, the new recruits or, you know, students that are currently at varsities are more likely, you know, to be aligned because they've been taught, um, in, in, in the 21st century and the approach and the methodology is pretty much aligned to the, to the, to the dictates of the 21st century delivery. But the majority of teachers who are currently in class are left behind, which now brings the issue of change management and, and how change is being, you know, how the transition 
from the old school of thought, if you like, to the new paradigm. Um, you know, practically speaking, because we know that, um, you know, teachers in public sector are overburdened. There's, you know, there's all the issues of, um, in the role of the unions, very strong, and, and, and you don't just jump in. It has to go through a whole lot of process, and people need to be onboarded and, and, and buy into this big vision. So, so my, my take from what you just pointed out reflect on a very deep sense of, um, or the need for, for, for change management system. Um, uh, from your lab, you know, because you obviously have, you're almost like a depository of a, 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 a unique way of doing things. Um, what would be your change management ethos or approach that you could perhaps maybe recommend for this, for the system as wide as, you know, as wide as, 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 as basic education that, that they take into account? I'll tell you what. This question is inspired by the fact that in most uh, programs, they fail. No, they don't fail because the ideas aren't there. They fail because we are not able to and uh, appreciate or the dynamics or get people mm. on board. You know, change the psyche, change the mentality. Yep. Good program, solid program, but they, they they lie idle because you have never worked with the psychology of those people, the teachers in this particular instance. How do we how do we get this? Very wonderful, uh, you know, uh, opportunities that you're talking about being infused in the way that teachers ought to be doing things. Yeah. So a couple of things, you know, we all know and talk a lot in this country about great policies and bad implementation. It's a narrative that, you know, we have everywhere, whether it's local government or it's education or it's health, it doesn't really matter. It's, it's everywhere. And um, you talk about something that's really important. So as the NECT and the chair of the NECT, one of the things that, you know, we've emphasized time and time again uh, to government. Government typically, you know, you have a process of how policies are determined, how they translate into the strategies, into the annual performance plans of government and so on. And very often it's about inputs as opposed to outcomes. And uh, we've been, you know, uh, having a number of sessions just about culture, okay? Because we all know that com- culture trumps strategy. In other words, if you have a great culture, you know, a great mindset, people are going to implement things as opposed to you have wonderful policies, uh, but the culture is bad and therefore nothing ever gets done, nothing gets uh, implemented and so on. So as the NECT, we've run a number of those sessions about culture, what culture would do need to implement in the Department of Education, understanding that in this country, education is a provincial competence. In other words, the National Department of Basic Education or the National Department of Higher Education, uh, Training and Science and Innovation, yes, are important, but actually implementation happens on the ground. It other happens at schools through provinces, at districts and circuits and schools, or at higher education, it happens at universities or TVET, colleges or community colleges. So if you're not addressing the culture at that level where the rubber hits the road, to use that language, you're not going to change the culture of the big system. So right now, for instance, uh, through the NECT, there are culture workshops at a level of a district, at a level of a circuit, and at at a level of a school. Uh, We started, obviously, this is quite new. We started last year with these culture workshops, uh, which, you know, in a, at a level of a school, uh, even replacing what used to be called life orientation, you know, as a subject, 
uh, to introduce really relevant topics around things like culture and innovation, as an example. So there are a number of those things as part of change management. But, you know, as I said earlier, it is a big system. It takes a while to change that system. And, uh, you know, it's going to be a while before we start to see the results in, in what we're doing. But it's very encouraging that we have the same administration as part of the sixth administration that's been in that system. So there's continuity of some of the programs that we have because the risk always is that you end up with a new minister um, and and therefore some of these programs, uh, you know, lose uh, the kind of support that they need for them to be sustained. I couldn't agree with you more, Dave. Eric? Uh, thank you, Siswe, uh, for, for bringing up uh, LO uh, as a subject um, and, and, and a vehicle to um, impact and accelerate the process of change. Um, my suggestion was going to be specifically, precisely that, that um, you offer uh, to put in specific components um, into LO um, through, throughout the 13 million and all the schools you're talking about that will enhance, not necessarily replace in the beginning. And, and I would uh, want to suggest, Nimrod, that, you know, some of the low-hanging fruit that can be I- embedded in, in the LO curriculum throughout the country would be stuff that's actually quite easy. So, you know, working the, the mobile aspect of digitization the fact that, in fact, marketing today, as you well know, since we're from FNB, and, and in fact even banking, is mobile-based. Marketing is social media-based. And if you really want to know how to use social media, ask those learners in grade 6, 7, 8, whatever, you know, how the world, you know, switching from what we knew as Facebook to Instagram, and the skills that they have that, that we don't even have. And the fact that that can be a space which would be incredible fun hmm. and a, a, an experiential learning process both for learners and for teachers. So that you'd, and, and no more bureaucracy. It's not the kind of skill set that gets, you know, lumbered with more bureaucracy and red tape. Yeah. It's, 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 so, and, and I, I even wanted to say I'm involved, um, in, in online education and, and I'm suggesting to you online education, for example, or components in terms of blended learning are actually much easier to operate with than, you know, and to learn for, 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 for teachers and for learners to, to, to actually embed into their learning process. So instead of, you know, seeing this Mount Kilimanjaro as this impossible barrier, part of the mindset, says we are suggesting, to get this accelerated countrywide is to really treat it as kind of easy and doable. Absolutely. You know, just to give you an example, Eric, you, you talked about your grandchildren. You know, yep. I have grandchildren. And, and uh, just this last weekend, I was talking to my seven-year-old grandson, who today can uh, use a basic scratch, which is a coding language, can, <laughs> can do, you know, robotics, uh, can, can do... Uh, for instance, you know, the basics of a C plus coding language, which we need in, in robotics. But the issue is, all our children can actually do, can be exposed yeah, sure to that, yep. which is a, a new skill, yep. especially in, in the digital age. Uh, but coming back to what we're doing, if we just go back to Igusasa Student Financial Aid Program, 
Yeah, because higher education is also quite slow to change. Mm. So already because we've got the private sector organized business, BLSA, the Banking Association, ASISA, which is, you know, the Association for Savings and Investments, professional bodies like SICA and so on, that are, you know, because we have a platform now <coughs> that we can have very different discussions, for instance, with the vice chancellors, with mm. the universities, with the dean's forums, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to say there are a lot of new degrees that we need to have. Uh, you know, that really point towards where the future of work is going. Mm-hmm. For instance, data science, mm-hmm. as an example. Because, Absolutely. you know, if a student was doing, say, mm-hmm. actuarial science yeah. or chartered accountancy, mm-hmm. as an example, <clears throat> you know, the skills of the future don't need a pure actuary. For sure. They need actuarial science that combines data, that combines uh, for instance, computing, so that you understand. Sure. Because in the future, a lot of these actuarial models that are now done by people will be done by Quantum computing will be done by artificial intelligence and so on. So there's a a whole set of new skills, of new degrees that we've got to have. And we're having very different conversations, uh, for instance, with the universities in this regard. Some universities are responding faster than others. And obviously some, you know, don't quite, you know, get it yet. But also just talking about accreditation bodies, you find that we have, for instance, the Council for Education, uh, which is called CHE. You have the QCTO for the Tibet colleges. And these accreditation bodies that accredit new degrees or new programs or new certificates, you find that, you know, they are completely snowed under or mm. inefficient. In yeah. other words, it may take, you talked about online education. Sure. Do you know that all universities or most universities today want to offer online degrees? Mm-hmm. But in this country, the Council for Education and, and Training, CHE, has to accredit online degrees as a separate, you know, degree. And it may take up to three years before those online degrees are actually accredited. And we don't have three years in the context of fast-paced, fast-digital world in which we live. So there are a number of these bottlenecks yes. as a country that we've got to resolve as a matter of agency. Uh, 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 and as ISFAP, as the Igusasa, we're working with a system to really agitate for change, for faster change in some of these areas. Uh, <coughs> uh, yeah. we, we're running out of time. Perhaps maybe as we're wrapping up, I've got two questions that I want to follow up uh, with, with, with Cesar, particularly around uh, the sustainability of, of, of Ukusasa Student Financial Aid Program, which, which uh, based on the literature that I've seen and based on you know, the conversation that you've had, proves to be a very useful model. Um, but there's one question that, that, that you know, I have to put you know, uh, before you, that is that of sustainability. Uh, because I've noted that you're offering grants, not about loans. Uh, and earlier on, when we, you know, back then when we used to have TEFSAs, you know, some mm-hmm. of us go had to pay back, you know, right. the loans, which meant that the fund can be self-sustained, yeah. even so though there are some negative consequences down the line. But how do you address issues of sustainability in a long term? So there are a couple of things that we've done as Igusasa. Uh, the first one is to understand the size of the problem. So we need about 26 billion rand per year just for the missing middle at universities hmm. alone. Wow. You know, so you can't address the size of that problem, uh, not through, uh, for instance, corporate social investments or foundations alone. So we had to find a sustainable solution. So what we did was to work with government. So we approached the Department of Trade and Industry. And um, last month, the DTI gazetted the change in the broad-based black economic empowerment codes, especially under Code 300, which is skills development, hmm. to allow employers, not just the private sector, all employers, 
to contribute up to 200% of their payroll towards bursaries that would go hmm. towards, wow. uh, particularly to Igusasa. Hmm. We hope to raise you know, up to about 18 billion rand a year just through that. Because as a country, we can also, last year, when uh, the former president Zuma announced his free education through NASFOS, hmm. we all ended up having to pay 1% more of that from 14% to 15%. And secondly, the government had to raid or maybe restructure government departments uh, for other social programs to allocate more additional funding to NASFAS. Obviously, that's not sustainable as well. As a country, we can't even go and borrow more money to be able to, you know, fund these students that uh, we have in the system. So we have to find more sustainable ways. So the DTI was really quick uh, to amend the codes, and today, you know, we have uh, codes that are going to filter into the sectoral codes uh, that we can generate a lot more money. Uh, secondly, it is absolutely <coughs> important to improve the throughput pass rates. Typically for NASFAS, the throughput pass rates are somewhere around 50 to 60 percent. In Igusasa, just in the two and a half years that we've been running, the throughput pass rates are around 92 percent. Wow. Why is that? It's wow. because in addition to the full cost of study that we make available to students, uh, we support the students. We provide them with holistic wraparound support, which mm. includes additional academic support because students are underprepared for university. Uh, secondly, we provide them with psychosocial support. We provide them with holistic life skill support. For instance, they get trained on financial literacy, how to plan your life at university, including how you allocate time to study versus everything else that you have to do as a young person. And that's why the results that we get for degrees like engineering, actuarial science, data science, medicine, and so on, that have much higher failure rates compared to, for instance, the humanities. So it can be done. And that's how, as you produce more students and you reduce the dropout rates, the unit cost of producing one graduate comes down. And that's why you sustain it and you have a lot more sustainable because these people start to and higher income, they pay taxes, they create more jobs, and we grow our economy. Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. We, we don't have run out of time. 30 seconds, you're parting short, um, Eric. Yeah, I just wanted to add uh, games. Gamification, as, as you probably know, is, is a huge industry. That's why Tencent is such a valuable company in, in terms of uh, NASPERS. And yeah, so even that aspect of the curriculum um, can be brought in to make it entertaining and, and you know... Well, it's part of computing, actually. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Okay. Thank you so much, yeah. Mrs. Ngasala, your, your parting shot? Well, my parting shot is, you know, we really are asking for the private sector particularly to come on board and support this initiative. If you want to do it, you can do it through uh, isfap.co.za and, you know, all the information on it is on the website. Thank you very much. There we have uh, Susan Masana, who is the chairperson of Ukusasa Student Financial Aid Program, a wonderful program that is meant to really address a huge backlog that uh, which is referred to as a missing middle. Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. We don't have much time. We definitely will have uh, another program just to deal in on some of those issues that you've pointed out. Thank Until you. we meet again, thank you very much.